Salutations shoppers. The Crystal Lake gift shop is now open. This is Mr. Venom welcoming you to another episode of the Crystal Lake gift shop where we are looking at the Friday the 13th, the series, which aired from 1987 to 1990. Manning the register today, as always, is my partner, Mike Merriman. How the hell are you doing, Mike? Hey, what's up? Great timing for this episode. We're about to uh, take over into October. It will be October by the time people are listening to this, so what a great time for a new episode. And this week, our special temporary clerk is going to be Miss Lacey Lou from Cut to the Chase and the Slumber Party Massacre podcast. Miss Lacey Lou, how's the sword treating you? Oh, it, it, it's good. I'm excited. Um, you know, at this point in time, when this episode aired that we're about to cover, I was um, about ready to be born. <laughs> oh, Jesus, shut up. <laughs> I was about ready to graduate high school. I was. It, it aired uh, October tenth, nineteen eighty seven, and uh, so I I was born in uh, November twenty second. So I was I was getting ready to pop. Nice. <laughs> I was curious because you said eighty seven, so it made me look up the date. So um, I was like, well, I wonder if it came out around when I was born. That's interesting because the uh, you're right. IMDb marks it as October tenth. As mm-hmm. the first air date for uh, episode two, but I'm look as I look at the guide, the uh, the behind the scenes Friday the Thirteenth the series book, which is very thorough. This tells me that the original air date was October fifth, so oh. it's somewhere in that range, regardless. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So as as I've already mentioned, we are looking at episode two of Friday the Thirteenth the series. This episode is called the Poison Pen. It is directed by Timothy Bond, who will come back and direct many more episodes, but this is his first episode of the series. It is written by Dunford King, Frank Mancuso Jr., and Larry B. Williams. Of course, as always, our three musketeers starring in the show, John D. LeMay, Luis Roby, and Chris Wiggins. Our synopsis is as follows. Ryan and Mickey disguise themselves as monks to retrieve a mysterious pen kept in an ancient monastery. So this is a this is an interesting episode. Uh, I did enjoy it a lot. I'm going to go ahead and start with my general thoughts, by the way. Yeah, I really enjoyed this uh, episode. I thought I, I, I'm always down for pen, cursed pens, quills, things like that. You know, any any time where like an, if an artist draws something and the picture comes to life or if a author writes something and the stories come to life. I've always been a big fan of those types of films and TV episodes. And this is just another one. This one opens up at a monastery where we see a robed monk uh, writing a very cryptic kind of uh, epitaph, as he calls them in the episode, epitaphs, which, of course, they do end up becoming epitaphs because everything that he's writing is about killing people. And, of course, all of that happens. So before we get into a a deep analysis of the episode, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to our guest, Miss Lacey Liu. Uh, Lacey, uh, was this the first time you've seen this episode? And if so, uh, give me your general thoughts. Um, Well, actually, um, so uh, this just this past Friday the 13th, I believe it was in May that we had, right? Um, me and Danos decided to do a Friday the 13th marathon, um, which is about, it takes like 18 and a half hours to watch every single film in the Friday the 13th franchise. But Dan wanted to take a nap before we got started before midnight hit. So, um, cause we we're starting it right at midnight on Friday the 13th. Like we even had like Jason donuts. Um, so like we were all prepared for this. And, um, but so I was like, you know what? I want to get started a little bit early. So, um, nudie had these on Plex. So I was like, you know, I'm, I've never seen an episode of this, so I'm going to give it a shot and maybe watch a couple of them. So I watched the first one, and it was about a doll, and then it came to the second one, and I kind of fell asleep on it. So um, if that's maybe any indication to where I might lean. But um, I, I did uh, – I probably got, like, ten minutes in. There's just something about, like, the atmosphere that to where it starts. It almost feels like olden day times. And even though it's not, I don't know, religion and horror, like, it has to be, like, a very specific kind. Like, I love, like, exorcism type stuff. Um, I, I do love the thought of the cursed pen, um, the poisoned pen, um, and what it does. But I just, I guess I just didn't like the setting. I hear you. I mean, anytime, even in a modern setting, if, if an episode or, TV or a movie is set in a monastery, 
it always gives it that element of, you know, being somewhat antiquated, you know, not coming from a modern times. So, you know, I definitely see that gripe. I myself am the complete opposite. Once yeah. I see monks and, you know, a stone monastery, this great gothic looking building, I, I am sold. And on top of the fact, the way that this episode started with the, you know, with the abbot speaking very cryptically, you know, as he's writing this epitaph, that just absolutely worked for me. I, I love dark narration. So, yeah, I, I see your points, definitely. But for whatever it's worth, I kind of forgave them on this go around. Uh, Mike, come on in here, buddy. Well, what do you think of the poison pen? All right. So much like you, I, I I do enjoy kind of the classic tale of here's your curse. I am that whatever you write, draw it, it comes to life in some form or fashion. And uh, I felt like the religious background in this one was really, you know, it, it wasn't so much important because really this is about like a corrupt monastery head that just wanted to make a bunch of money off uh, a land de- a land deal. And the fact that he was in like this monk coven kind of gave him cover for it. I, I do, I do like the fact that um, it kind of made him, it, it kind of made the situation where he was presumed, like people would presume that, Oh, these are just coincidences because you know, this guy's not evil. He's a monk. And, uh, I, I like that he was using, he was kind of held holding someone captive to, uh, take out anyone that disagreed. And, you know, most of the people were loyal to him because they had no idea. And I, I will say this is one of, you know, I don't have a clear memory of a ton of episodes individually, but we're, we're only at episode two and we're already seeing kind of like limitations of doing this kind of thing on TV because, it did kind of get like cheesy with the effects in that third act when we kind of get our, our third act finale of opening scene. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess opening scene too, but even, like, even with the, like the flying guillotine and all that kind of looked funny. Oh, it definitely uh, went over the top with the flying guillotine, but I mean the flying yeah. habit in the opening scene that just looked terrible. <laughs> yeah, that looked, yeah, that was pretty bad too. Um, I, I made a joke about, uh, Mickey and Orhobi being like the original Mulder and Scully, but I, I really feel like that that it, they kind of have that feel to it because especially in this one, you know, they they see the article in the paper about the death and they start doing the research and they go track down the pen. Um, I, I totally like the idea of like, well, we can't just take off with the pen, so we have to make a replica. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I will say, man, it, it's pretty damn easy to infiltrate a monastery. Cause they basically <laughs> they basically just show up in robes and are like, "Yeah, we're from this other mon," and like they don't really question them that much. Maybe they needed someone to help do yard work because they put them to work, so they're all right. All right, we'll welcome you in. I, I would say it, it's a step down from the pilot episode, but it, you know it, it was okay for what it is, and it, it's hard to make a grand comparison yet because. We're only on the second episode, and without memory of a bunch of episodes, I can't really say where it lies mm-hmm. yet. But I'll just say I, I like the pilot more than this one. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I, yeah, I really like this one. I like this one almost as much as the pilot. Obviously, the pilot has some actual blood and gore in this one. It's more implied gore in this one. We don't actually get the viscera that we get in the in the first episode, but... I really like this story. And I, and as more elements of the story are kind of, you know, disclosed, I like the story even more. The back, uh, you know, the backstory of who this guy is, him and his partner, Frank, and what they're hiding from. Like, I, I thought, that, you know, like at first I was wondering why this thing was set in a monastery. But then you get the reveal later on that this guy is actually hiding from something, that him and his partner are hiding from something. And it, why, why wouldn't you go to a monastery? Cops can't go in there. That's a holy place. So, it, yeah, uh, as more and more of the story was being revealed, I actually found myself really enjoying this story. And for whatever it's worth, I thought this antagonist was at least he was better than the stepmother from episode one. Because he's I mean, I, honestly, he's more of the true antagonist as a, just like the doll was more so in the first episode. Here we actually have a legit human antagonist who is actually, 
you know, performing acts that are killing people. So for whatever it's worth, I, I really did enjoy this new, uh, this episode, excuse me. Roby wasn't nearly as annoying, though she still did find a way to get under my nerves a little bit once they were in the monastery. I know we all know the scene that I'm probably talking about. It, it's just insufferable. <laughs> On top of the fact that they even, the, the, the fact that they even try to uh, disguise her as a man. It's like, I'm sorry, yeah, but there are ridiculous. certain women. Yeah, there are certain women in this world that even if you strip off all their makeup and put them in a black robe, they still look like attractive women. Anybody who thought Roby was a man in this episode, I, I absolutely have to question. Now, I will say those are monks who probably haven't seen a woman in years. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I guess I can give them a little concession there. But I don't know. What do you think, Lazy? You think you could just squish your boobs and take off your makeup and everybody will think you're a boy? Oh, God. Well, I don't know. I got called Joe Pesci yesterday, but um, so maybe. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I was terrible. Like, I didn't even, there was nothing to warrant that period, but whatever. Like, it's, it, you know, I take, like, whatever people say online with a grain of salt anymore. Oh, so, God, you know. Um, what, what, was the con- what was the context of the comment? Was he talking about your voice or your height or what? Oh, no. So, okay. So I posted the Slumber Party Massacre because I dropped episode 20 yesterday, right? And I posted it in the 22 Shots page, you know, how we all promote our podcasts on everybody else's pages, right? And so I posted in there and someone came in and they were like, you know, this place is like a ghost town or it's this page is basically dead, right? And I was like, I don't know what you mean. And he was like, well, there's no one for you to promote your podcast to in here. And um, he was like, if you look, I'm the only one that posts in here. And like, so Dan, oh. came in. so Dan came in and he was just like, no, people just post. You just don't get any action on yours. And like he made like a little <laughs> face and, you know, just Dan being a little smart ass. And um, he was like, the guy got like really offended by it. And he was like, um, he was like, I don't know why you're coming at me, bro. If you want to play, let's play. And Dan was like, uh, you're the one that's offended. And he was like, you know what? Your girl looks like Joe Pesci. And like, I was like, <laughs> I was like what the fuck? <laughs> I was just like. Oh, my God. That, that, that was probably just the first name that popped in his head. He just had to think of an insulting name for you. <laughs> like, I know I'm a short uh, brunette, but like, so I was just like, I don't know why you're attacking my appearance, but sure, I'll roll with it. And I just posted like the Joe Pesci smiling gif from uh, Home Alone. So, I mean, like, like, I, you just can't let those things bother you. But so, but I don't like maybe in his eyes, I could pass as a man. But I think um, typically, no, I think I pretty much in, I like I, I have I have a pretty big rack. So the, that'd be pretty hard to, you know, hide. <laughs> And I wouldn't very want true, very true. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. to, to be fair, though, they are in big robes, but I still think like they would cling to you. You know what I mean? Like would literally have yeah. to tape everything down. And that would be like, and how long were they there for? Like, if I have to tape that down, I'm not doing that for days. <laughs> I could yeah, do that. They were for definitely days. there for days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're on, you're on your own, Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> Like, well, she was like, well, that means I'm out. Like, she, like, really wanted to go. So, like, I, I appreciate her enthusiasm. And what's weird is, like, her name is Louise Roby in real life. And when I was married, that was actually my maiden name. My middle name is actually, so Lacey Lou is actually Lacey Louise. So when I was married, it was Lacey Louise Roby. So which is kind of a weird correlation, I guess. Oh, then you're the uh, perfect did you guys, I love it. Did you, did you guys find it interesting that there was like a spy hole in the shower? And it's like, well, what are they usually spying in on? Yeah, like, well, I, I think the answer since there's is no women here. there. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he was I mean, he he had almost like a shit eating grin, too, when he when he looked away from the peephole or maybe it's a glory hole. I mean, it looked pretty big to be a peephole. Honestly, I mean, because yeah, I don't know how obvious. she didn't know. Like anybody in the shower. Like a glory would hole? <laughs> I I, I can see a glory hole in a monastery. Hey, don't ask, don't tell, man. <laughs> <laughs> do, they, do they abide by the military motto? <laughs> I doubt it. I very much doubt it. But, I mean, it, it seems like they take the rules kind of, like, loose and fast here because the abbot, as we already mentioned, the abbot is trying to sell the monastery. It, I don't think that's a thing. Can the abbot just sell a monastery? That doesn't, I mean, because the abbot isn't the owner. You know what I mean? He's just he just runs the church, the monastery that's on the property. I I guess in this instance he was the owner, but it just I don't know. It felt really really weird. 
it's almost like they were implying he had to become abbot before he could sell the monastery, which, like I said, I, I don't think that's a thing. But again, maybe he was just trying to will himself to have all this power. Yeah, well, I definitely will himself. I mean, hell, he's got the pen. Of <laughs> right. Of course he is. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have cleaned it up and, and said selling the land instead of the actual monastery. Oh, man. All right. So I, if there's nothing else that we can kind of talk about for general, why don't we just get into the little bit of a walkthrough that I've got written out here? Um, as I've said, I am taking a lot of what I'm saying out of Curious Goods, behind the scenes of Friday the 13th, the series written by Elise Wax. I will be... That'll be my source for many episodes of this podcast. So uh, basically our episode opens, as I mentioned earlier, it opens with a robed figure sitting at a desk and speaking very cryptically with a deep monotone voice, which always helps the creep factor. And we hear him talk about, uh, you know, the abbot will be lifted from the ground and, you know, something about will fall from grace. You know, I can't remember the exact line, but it was very cryptic. And then after he's done writing, uh, we go outside and we see the abbot just walking around the monastery grounds. And suddenly he lifts off the ground, like literally just starts to levitate. And he almost his reaction is really weird. Like, was anybody else surprised that he wasn't more like, what the fuck is going on? Like he was almost going <laughs> with it for a little while. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. at the end, <laughs> at the end of his little ride, uh, basically, gravity comes back, uh, you know, with full of vengeance, and he falls to the ground, and of course, he is dead. And that is the cold open of our episode. That's my favorite fucking part of this episode. Like that's valid. Hey, it's I mean, it's the only good squish that we get in this episode, so I'll take. <laughs> it. Yeah, and they 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 do establish like the power structure too, because right before that, when they're discussing, you know, possibly selling the place and. You could tell, like, the second-in-command guy wants to, but he's like, oh, you know, you're in charge. Whatever you decide, we'll go with. And then immediately after, he's offed. So it's like, yeah, uh, I don't think you're going to go with what he wanted to do. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I All right. Like, so after, oh, of course, ahead. I get the floating monk episode. death. <laughs> <laughs> Would you prefer the flying nun episode? Is there a Holy flying shit, nun episode? No, no, it's an old, it's an old reference. Sorry, I forgot. I'm the old guy on this show. You forgot I wasn't <laughs> even born when this episode aired. Very valid. <laughs> I was hoping Mike would know. It, he may have. I don't know. He chuckled, but maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, Sally Field, the Flying Nun. Look it up. Oh, okay. Any- I have heard of it. I've just never seen it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So after our cold open, we are back at Curious Goods, where Jack. And Jack basically decides to give Ryan and Mickey a lesson on who Nostradamus is. Uh, They read an article about uh, the Oracle of Death is what the newspapers are calling him. And he is basically a brother at the Eternal Brotherhood Monastery. He is Brother Curry. And basically he is getting popular because every time he writes a prediction, it comes true. And it comes true instantly, like the same day, usually like within hours. So, you know, of course, newspapers are going to get in, in, you know, they're going to be interested. They're going to want to write articles about them. And what ends up happening is there's a picture in the article of Brother Curry and Jack recognizes the quill pen that he is holding in his hand. The reason that Jack recognizes his pen, he fucking made it. He remembers that he made this um, from what was it? A Turkish condor, was it? A Chilean condor. Ha, to Chile. I had to find it in my notes. Yes. Basically, he took a feather from a Chilean condor, which he quips, they're the worst kind, which I, I didn't know condors came in varying degrees of danger, but okay. Um, yeah, that, that was a huge so he, I don't know why, they, why it matters. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if they were going for a joke there or what, but whatever. It kind of fell a little flat, but anyway. It's, exotic wasn't enough. It had to be dangerous and exotic. Exactly. So after he sees the pen and recognizes it, he, of course, he goes back to the Curious Goods Manifest. He sees in the manifest that the pen is listed as being sold to Rupert Selden, who disappeared several years later. And why did he disappear? Because he was a suspect in his business partner's murder. This is what I was talking about, folks. Like, as we get these little plot points, it's starting to come together. It's starting to make sense why this is taking place in a monastery. Because if you can't get out of the country... And you're running from a murder charge. 
Uh, I, I would say a sanctuary at a holy place is probably going to be your best bet if you're stuck in this country. So, And then that's when Jack uh, comes up with his brilliant idea of, you know, since monasteries don't allow visitors necessarily, that they're going to have to, and they being Mickey and Ryan, will have to pretend that they are monks. And yes, of course, we're talking about the beautiful redhead with large breasts, who is going to pretend to be a male monk. Oh, by the way, the way that they're able to get around the whole voice thing is that she says she's on a, a vow of silence, which is very common, you know, for monks and nuns, things like that. So um, <laughs> they don't really question them when they say that. And I, I'm still I'm still looking at Roby like, come on, guys. No, nobody is this dumb. She still looks great <laughs> with no makeup on and a robe. Come on, guys. <laughs> so anyway, Jack ends up writing a letter of introduction, uh, a letter that he claims could fool the Pope. And he basically we see him take this piece of parchment. He writes, you know, in beautiful Gothic lettering, this recommendation uh, for brothers Matthew and Simon, who are from Yorkshire, to come to this monastery to, you know, to pray, to learn, to do whatever. And. Brother uh, Brother Drake is the man who greets them at the gate. You can tell that he's kind of hesitant. You know, he's not real sure about their idea, but the paperwork that they have with them looks legit. Uh, he goes ahead and accepts them, uh, brings them to their room, which, of course, Mickey and Ryan have to share, which instantly Mickey starts going crazy about, which this is where she starts to fucking annoy me, because it's like you came to a <laughs> monastery. Why would you think you were getting your own bedroom? I mean, why would you think you were yeah, getting like, some kind of hotel accommodation? Well, he does make the comment. He was like, hey, it could be worse. It could be only one bed. But, like, that would be good for him. But I don't know. <laughs> Just really creepy because right before he makes that comment, he kind of looks Mickey up and down. And this is the second episode in a row that uh, Ryan's creeped me out with the way he looks at his cousin. Like, <laughs> I, thank God they made these two cousins because, like Doug said on episode one, you know, the whole will they, won't they thing would have been really thick in this if they were, you know, not related. But I feel like but then the fact, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you might be right. I mean, hell, <laughs> I'm not sure what state they're in. They could be in Mississippi. I don't know. But <laughs> just, yeah, man, that, that is some freaky shit. Because now we're, you know, we're two episodes in and he's still checking out his cousin inappropriately. And that just freaks me out. So and then Mickey, of course, finds out that they do have communal showers and bathrooms, which freaks her out even more. Again, I don't know what the hell she was expecting, but OK. Hey, uh, at this point, if oh, I was freaking in, I would like as a female, I would feel very uncomfortable. Like, I'm not like one of those like feminist people or whatever, but like, sure. Like, just feeling the pressure of, like, not supposed to be there at all, period, and you're hunting someone evil, and, like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I, absolutely. Like, it doesn't the added, make sense. The, ab, the added pressure of having to go to the bathroom, like, I, like, when she was saying those lines, I was just thinking, I was like, well, like, what would happen if, like, I go to the bathroom and, like, I go into the stall, and then I just sit down to pee, and, like, somebody comes in and I'm just, like, sitting there peeing and they're like, well, why are they sitting down while peeing? Like, I, I, went, I really went off, like, on a whole tangent in my head about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, like, freaked me out. I'm not going to lie. Hey, that's what good art does, man. It gets you thinking. Well, right. art, at least. I, I don't know about good art, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> at this point, we are introduced to Brother LaCroix, and he is going to be our main antagonist for this episode. He's cautious of the new recruits. But at first, he thinks Matthew and Simon are at worst journalists. Like he actually says, just make sure they're not journalists or something, which um, Drake, the other, um, you know, LaCroix is like number one or helper, whatever you want to call him, assistant, uh, basically finds out that they're not journalists, but still doesn't really know what they are. So kind of lets it go. Um, that evening, Ryan and Mickey follow one of the brothers as he's delivering a tray of food to the cloistered Brother Curry. Don't forget, Brother Curry is the quote-unquote oracle of death, as the newspaper put it. And as after the brother drops the tray of food off at the door, um, we basically hear um, Ryan yell out, you know, Brother Curry, your food is here. Brother Curry opens the door, grabs the 
to grab the tray and instantly Mickey and Ryan, they don't rush him necessarily, but they like walk up to him and start asking, you know, questions. And, and one of them mentions the pen, which quickly freaks out brother Curry. He kind of scurries back into his room and brother LaCroix shows up, of course, um, along with brother Arupe and basically telling him that you can't bother this guy. He is secluded for a reason. You're not allowed up there. Blah, 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 blah. They get sent back to their room. I'm, I'm shocked they weren't kicked out at this point. Because yeah, there are, uh, right? I mean, I they're already doing like, non-mole things. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how was their cover not blown? Or at least they weren't even questioned further. Like, what the hell are you doing? How do you even know to come up here and, like, try to yep. get in there and all that? Exactly right. So... Um, the next morning, Mickey and Ryan are given their chores. They're raking and, and mowing the lawn. And basically, Brother Arupe runs up to them and starts to say, oh, the Oracle of Death has made another proclamation. And, you know, uh, Ryan asks him, well, what's the proclamation? And, and he says, the proclamation is that the abbot will choke tonight. Mind you, don't forget, folks, the abbot w- is the guy who died in the opening scene. He's the guy that went for the, you know, the, the joyride up in the sky. <laughs> and, and at this point, uh, a new abbot has not been appointed. When Ryan reminds Brother Arupe about that fact, he kind of calms down instantly. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. There, we don't have an abbot right now. Maybe the Oracle of Death is finally going to be wrong about something, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that night, as uh, Brother Arube is going to bed, he picks up his mail and he starts kind of flipping through his mail. He opens up a letter and reads it, and instantly we see him, like, celebrate. Like, I, I don't know if he actually, like, fist-pumped or anything, but he actually has a visible celebration. He doesn't say what's in the letter. Obviously, he's by himself. But we can see that he's, you know, very, very happy. And then suddenly what we see is he's sleeping on one of those four-poster beds that has, you know, the, the covering on top, the, uh, the canopy, I think they call it. Uh, basically, at this point, the canopy starts to slowly lower down to the abbot. The abbot's frozen. In, or, well, I shouldn't say the abbot. Brother uh, brother Arupe. He basically is he's frozen in fear on his bed. Um, the canopy is coming down very slowly. It doesn't like come and just squish him <laughs> in an instant. It comes down very slowly. He's obviously, as I said, frozen in fear. He ends up not getting out of the bed. And eventually the canopy comes all the way down and kills brother Arupe at at the instant that he dies the canopy goes back up and literally as soon as the canopy is back in the proper position um, brother LaCroix walks in and and along with Mickey and uh, Ryan and whoever else and they're like well wait a minute why did he die and they see the letter on the bed they pick up the letter and lo and behold the letter was a promotion basically naming him the new abbot so now we know Whoops. why he died. So I don't know if Brother LaCroix knew that a, that a new abbot was going to be appointed that same day to make the prediction, or should I say the Oracle of Death, um, Brother Curry. But I don't know. What do you guys think? You think he just got lucky or he knew that letter was coming? Uh, I think I think he knew. Um, I don't know why I think that, but I mean, obviously the dude is evil and um, there was probably like a way of, you know, obviously the other guy died, right? When he mm-hmm. like floated off of the fucking wall, but, um, and plummeted to his death. Um, but I feel like there's probably like an order, right? Like, so either. Pecking order. Yeah. Yeah. So like he probably knew that he was next in line. That makes sense. Absolutely. I, I'm yeah. I, I think so because of his position of power, he, he must've had like the insider info and, Everything he's doing is calculated, so I don't think it would have been random. So I think he knew, like, I have to take out all the pecking orders, so, like, I'm the only one left in charge. There you go. That makes sense. Absolutely. The scene did remind me of a little bit of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit for some reason. Like, uh, Which kill? Uh, the mother in, at the end of part one when they're on the bed. Oh, okay, yeah. And, and then when Freddie like, comes up out of the sheets, <laughs> um, it, I don't know, it was just very reminiscent of that to me for some reason. Absolutely. Yeah, because at first I was wondering if he survived because it looked like he ripped open the sheet or whatever yeah. Yeah. to like be able to breathe, but nope, he was crushed, I guess. I guess. I mean, the canopy doesn't look like it's crushable, but okay. 
<laughs> again. Okay, so once the news gets out that the Oracle of Death has once again predicted successfully another death at the at the monastery, Jack decides that the that the kids are probably either already in trouble or are going to get in trouble very soon. So he then decides to fake a letter for himself to also get into the monastery, but He's a transfer from Ireland. So, yes, Jack has, unfortunately, not a great Irish accent. And basically, he's using it the entire time that he's here, at least whenever he's around Brother LaCroix or Brother Curry or any of those folks. And, yeah, he basically sneaks into the monastery. He finds uh, Mickey and uh, Ryan. He lets them know that he made a replica of the pen. Since he made the original, why not make a replica just because and he basically says, I kind of figured you weren't going to be able to get out of the get out of the monastery with the pen because somebody's going to notice rather quickly. So, of course, he brings the copy. He gives it to Mickey. They start to form a plan, but more on that plan later. Uh, at this point, brother, we find out that Brother Curry isn't actually Brother Curry. He's basically a guy named Frank. And he's the one who runs to LaCroix, basically saying, hey, those newbies know about the pen. Uh, LaCroix is, um, you know, he doesn't, again, LaCroix is such a, a, a calm, steady person, at least until the third act, that he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't react too violently or, you know, mad or anything like that. He just kind of, he, he does react. And then basically at that exact same time, we get Brother Drake <laughs> sneaking into a wall opposite of their communal bathroom at this point, Mickey is taking a shower with Ryan and Jack outside the bathroom door, kind of keeping guard, making sure that no no other monks walk in. Unfortunately, as Roby kind of sidesteps out of the shot, we see the biggest goddamn peephole I've ever seen in a shower. This thing, this thing trumps the hole in Porky's. I mean, personally, I don't think it's just a peephole. To me, it looked like a glory hole. And we're in a monastery, so I know the kind of, you know, everything that comes with that accusation. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But that, I was that going to say, do, do, do tell what uh, comes with that accusation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're not smart enough to figure it out, I'm leaving it alone. <laughs> All right. So at this point, Drake goes running to LaCroix, lets them know um, the newbies. They're definitely not monks. On top of everything, uh, Brother Simon is actually a woman, and that kind of surprises LaCroix a little bit, but he's not really worried about it. Um, he decides uh, Brother Drake wants to kick them out. He basically says, I'm going to escort them off the premises right now. LaCroix stops them and basically says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just write up another epitaph for our little guests. At this point, uh, Frank the fake, you know, the fake brother Curry. I mean, Curry might be his last name, but he's obviously not a brother. Um, brother Curry basically lets LaCroix know that he wants out. He doesn't want to be a part of this anymore. LaCroix is just killing off everyone that even comes remotely close to finding out the truth about them. And they've, they've racked up a body count. So, you know, like I said, Frank develops a conscious. Um, that's that's and, kind of an interesting thing, too, because like cursed item or not, you would think if, like, dead monks keep showing up in the news at this one <laughs> monastery, like, yeah. the actual law enforcement's going to show up and be like, okay, what the hell's going on at your monastery where, uh, like, people keep dying, and not just, like, regular dying, like, dude jumped off the freaking roof, <laughs> and, like, just all sorts of, like, over-the-top deaths. You would think it would, it would bring a lot more suspicion. And not only that, now like three random people are just showing up. Yeah. To like you know with with ease. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So at this point, uh, we find out that Lacroix is actually Robert Seldom, the man who supposedly bought the pen, and it turns out that is his real name. He actually is Robert Seldon. He is the man who bought the pen directly from um, Curious Goods. Uh, Jack is able to compare uh, Robert Seldon's signature with some of LaCroix's writings, and they match perfectly. So he's like, okay, I think we got our guy. At this point now, you know, we have to figure out what to do. But that night, LaCroix is kind of, um, he's kind of fed up with Frank, his partner. He's basically just decides, you know what, 
uh, before I take care of our little guests, I'm going to take care of Frank and writes an epitaph that basically says he's going to die a horrific death or something along those lines. And what ends up happening is he ends up getting put into a guillotine. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, Brother Frank or Brother Curry has now been dispatched. The Oracle of Death basically is now dead, but he did leave. They almost look at it as a suicide because they they imply that he wrote it himself because that's what they all thought. They all thought that Brother Curry was the Oracle of Death, but actually it was Brother LaCroix. And uh, yeah, so Mickey, uh, Mickey and Ryan end up finding Brother Curry on the guillotine. They end up finding a note next to him that kind of looks like a suicide note. But, you know, it's an odd way to kill yourself. But OK, at this point, uh, LaCroix decides that Mickey and Ryan are have outstayed their welcome and he decides to write an epitaph for them. Now, in writing an epitaph for them, he basically writes an epitaph saying that brothers Matthew and Simon would get killed. Don't forget, this is this is Mickey and Ryan. Their name is not Matthew and Simon. So when when he writes this epitaph, what we see that night is we see a huge, uh, a big hairy tarantula crawling on Mickey's arm. Mickey, by the way, is legitimately wearing lingerie. She's fucking <laughs> sleeping in lingerie in a monastery. God damn this woman. <laughs> it's like she didn't think before she came here. I, I, I just don't get it. But okay. So she's anyway. like, hey, she's like, if my cover's blown, they'll be too attracted to me to hurt me anyway. I guess. Well, they literally. Uh, I don't know. I think that would be the opposite. Actually, I think you'd see you'd get about thirty horny ass monks doing terrible shit to you, especially considering some of them aren't nice. <laughs> We've right. got some bad monks in there. So well, yeah. I, uh, they really only planned this out for like two minutes, and she was just like before she even. Um, because she's a female, she's like, well, I'm out, and then they just throw a robe on her, and then they just go. Right, like, right. I don't really think they thought it through at all. <laughs> yeah, well, they obviously didn't think it through. I mean, this plan is terrible. This, this. I mean, they literally had a good plan for getting in. They had no plan whatsoever for getting out. Literally, right. the plan was get the pen and get out, but no actual plan, whereas they had a plan to get in, you know, with the fake letter from the Vatican and everything else, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Like, like the pen. Like the pen was just going to be sitting out in the open on someone's desk. Exactly. My <laughs> God. So anyway, uh, we, we see the tarantula climbing on uh, Mickey. Uh, eventually, Ryan wakes up and sees the spider on her. He gets up and instantly like s- uh, slaps it off her. Mickey makes the claim that it bit her. But of course, anyone who knows anything about spiders knows tarantulas don't have enough venom to kill humans. So <laughs> Roby was safe <laughs> completely. But again, they're going on figuring that most people don't know that fact. So that's fine. The next morning, we see Mickey, Ryan and Jack all having their morning uh, bowl of brown rice, which is mentioned multiple times in the episode, how they're sick of eating brown rice. Apparently, that's all they eat there. What kind of life is that? Yikes. And how do you get all your nutrients just out of brown rice? That seems odd. Anyway. They are, uh, like I said, they're in the courtyard eating breakfast, and then Brother LaCroix and Brother Drake come out, and instantly he sees Mickey and Ryan sitting there, and finally we get, like, a visceral reaction from LaCroix. He actually loses his cool a little bit in the sense that he's just in shock. He's like, he doesn't understand what's going on. Then he actually walks up to them and actually says, well... Some of the other brothers have complained about vermin, spiders, rats, things like that in your room. Have you guys run into anything like that? And all three of them are just like, nope, nope, not at all. So, of course, LaCroix is confused as hell. A brother, Drake, ends up coming up to him and letting him know that uh, that the real brothers, uh, Matthew and Simon, who actually are real. Uh, so I'll give I'll give Jack credit for that. He didn't just make up a couple of monks. He actually did some research and found two real ones to transfer. So he got, so, murdered. Oh. He got, <laughs> he got oh. murdered for their efforts. I know that's so fucked up. Those poor guys did nothing. Like, wrong. Whoops. That's so fucking horrible. It is horrible. It's, it's collateral damage when you're after a cursed item, I guess. Like, I, like, I hope the pen was worth it, you guys. Really? <laughs> like, look, he was just using it for a land deal. It was really so bad. <laughs> exactly. So after 
Uh, basically, after all of this, you know, after Mickey and Ryan then go to do their chores and everything else, um, Jack starts snooping around LaCroix's office. Oh, by the way, I, I did skip a little piece where we do see uh, LaCroix actually talking to, uh, you know, some kind of businessman. And they are trying to work out a deal where LaCroix wants at least $10 million uh, for the for the monastery. He is willing to sell. He's the first abbot, apparently, who's willing to sell. And he just wants the, you know, he just wants it now. Now, the agent that he's working with charge, tries to charge him too much in interest in, you know, his, his fees, his interest rate. Um, basically, he asks for 10 percent, which, you know, when it comes to lawyers and things like that, I think five to 10 percent is normal. But I guess in this instance, three percent is normal. And the abbot instantly is offended that this guy is trying to rip him off. And he basically tells him, well, now you're only going to get 2.5% and you're giving me $15 million in cash. And apparently the businessman agrees. They have a handshake agreement and $15 million in cash will be coming the new Abbott's way. At this point, Jack starts snooping around LaCroix's office. He doesn't find the pen, but what he does find is the book that he's writing all of his epitaphs in. So, you know, he sees it. That's when he compares Robert Seldom's signature to the to the type that's in there. It has the same gothic calligraphy style. So he decides, OK, we got our guy that night. There is a service. They basically have like a, you know, like mass, basically, where they have multiple services a day at a monastery. And usually Brother LaCroix would lead them in prayer for the whole session. This particular night, though, he turns those duties over to Drake. He basically just starts the session but then he turns over the, the uh, lead duties to Drake and he decides to go back to his office where, of course, he finds Jack snooping around his office. Jack is still doing the Irish accent at this point And LaCroix tells him, stop with the accent. I know who you are. I know you're not an Irish you know, brother. And, you know, Jack instantly is like, oh, shit. Well, I thought you were meditating at this point. We actually get what could be either the best or worst line in the episode. I think I'm going to leave it up to the individual viewer. But basically, Jack looks at LaCroix and says, I thought you were meditating. LaCroix retorts, I was premeditating. Uh, I don't know if that's clever or stupid, because at the time, I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> I think it's both. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's equal parts yeah. stupid and clever. Absolutely. I'll go with that. <laughs> All right. So at this point, LaCroix takes Jack to the guillotine. He, he finally admits that he does have the pen, but that only Jack and his two friends know about it. So he's going to have to take care of them. What he ends up doing is he puts Jack under the guillotine and rather see this is this is where he turns into a James Bond bad guy, an idiot James Bond bad guy, because rather than just, you know, release the guillotine and cut his head off, he he basically puts a candle under the rope that's holding the guillotine up. So it's like, I guess he's letting him sit there to stew in his own thoughts for a little while. But I, I, I don't understand. God, bad guys are so stupid sometimes. <laughs> you know, uh, the monologuing and everything. It just doesn't make sense. And like I said, at this point, since he's got Jack under the guillotine. He knows he doesn't have to write an epitaph for him. He has a secondary meeting with the developer at this point, the land developer. And basically, a brother Drake is snooping around and he overhears the deal. And Brother Drake, at this point, seems to be like the only real believer uh, in the monastery and the brothers and everything else. So he instantly tell, you know, is not happy with it. Mickey and Ryan split up at this point. Uh, Mickey goes to LaCroix's office. She ends up finding the pen where Jack could not. She ends up finding it underneath his chair. It's like hidden in like a compartment underneath his chair at his desk. She finds the real one. She replaces it with the fake one and she leaves, you know, without pretty much unscathed. At this point, Mickey meets up with Ryan, who just untied Jack from the guillotine. Yes, of course, Ryan does arrive in time to save Jack. I mean, it's only episode two, for Christ's sake. Can't kill your best character. Mickey proudly proclaims that she made the switch, that she has the real pen and LaCroix now has the fake pen. Unfortunately, LaCroix is standing right there in the shadows, you know, kind of steps out of the shadows, still with the gun in his hand. And basically says, oh, well, thank you very much for that piece of information. He goes ahead. He gets, you know, he gets the real pen back. Now, he can't find his journal because, like I said, um, Jack stole it earlier. I'm, I'm not sure if Jack still has it on his person or if he hid it somewhere. But LaCroix basically 
sees a piece of paper on the desk. And without checking the piece of paper to see what it is, he decides to start writing an epitaph for Jack, Mickey, and Ryan. And he ends up uh, writing out the entire epitaph, talking about, you know, they're going to meet their ends and everything else. And then he basically says, oh, all I got to do now is add the names. At that exact moment, Drake, Brother Drake, attacks him with an axe. Um, he's he's not successful, unfortunately, and he basically... A big whiff. Just, oh, major whiff. I wouldn't expect a monk to know how to wield a giant axe, though, so I'll, I'll, I'll cut him a little <laughs> slack, just a little. But yeah, he ends up joining the menagerie of uh, hostages that LaCroix has, and just as he's about to put down the names, write down the names on the paper to complete the epitaph, Jack lets him know what the piece of paper is that he wrote the epitaph on. He turns the piece of paper over. It's the fucking sales receipt from the pen when he bought the pen at Curious Goods. And guess what? His name is on the receipt. So at this moment, and unfortunately, folks, I, I will not be able to convey the cheesiness of this episode of this scene. <laughs> Even though I had a smile on my face the entire time because it was just so hokey and stupid that I loved it, the guillotine comes flying off its apparatus, you know, the stand, and literally starts flying around with some terrible late 80s uh, special effects. Yeah, these uh, effects were not very special, but man. The phantasm ball, it ain't. Oh, God, no. <laughs> the phantasm ball would piss on this thing. <laughs> um so yeah, so like I said, we see we see the guillotine kind of flying around, uh, chasing the abbot. Eventually, <laughs> the the guillotine misses on one of its attacks and gets stuck in the ground. Um, and at that point, the abbot comes back out and decides uh, to finish the job with the gun on Jack, Mickey, Ryan, and Brother Drake. But then at that moment, when the when the abbot has his back turned, we see the guillotine kind of get itself free from the wall where it was stuck. <laughs> it comes up behind the, uh, and, and this thing, I got to say, this guillotine has a sense of humor because he literally, they literally do the Bugs Bunny thing where Mickey is like, uh, there's something behind you. And instantly the abbot's like, I'm not going to fall for an old trick like that. And the guillotine is so respectful that it, it let Mickey finish her point. <laughs> like literally he could the, we see the guillotine floating behind them this whole time like it's waiting for something you know i all yeah, i can figure very, is that it's very looney tunes like, yeah exactly <laughs> i might cry laughing just hearing you describe this scene <laughs> oh god like like i mean i watched it but just like hearing the words oh, like, oh, like, valid man um, anybody hearing my voice who's never seen this episode probably thinks this episode is just ridiculous I mean, oh my god like no like i literally have tears in my eyes when i'm looking <laughs> like i'm just picturing it just like like i'm like picturing it all as you're just like reconveying what happened and exactly. it's so ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> there you go and then finally after mickey and the abbot are done having their little conversation then we see the guillotine Rather than cutting the abbot's head off, which is what you would think the guillotine would want to do, that's what it's used to doing, the guillotine flies straight into his back, and it goes through him just enough. There's no blood or gore, but it goes through him just enough that we see the front of his robe kind of jump a little bit, you know, kind of just pop up a little bit, and then he falls down. No blood or nothing, but, you know, we take what we can get on television. Great. <laughs> and then at this point, uh, we're back, you know, for our final scene at Curious Goods. We see that Jack is reassuring a worried Mickey that the real pen is safely tucked away in the vault. Ryan or Mickey isn't convinced. She's like, well, how do you know? I mean, you made such a perfect facsimile. How do you know that's the real pen or, or not the real pen? How do you know that's the facsimile? Ryan then makes, you know, the closing episode joke that almost never lands where he basically says, uh, well, let's try it and order, let's order some, let's order for some food or let's get lunch. I forget the exact line, but he's implying that he wants to make a food order. He says, he said, let's order something sinful. Yeah, something yeah. really sinful. Exactly. And of course, Jack and Ryan, uh, excuse me, Jack and Mickey jump up and grab the pen out of his hand and we get freeze frame. And that is the end of our episode. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with this episode is, this is one of the first times that we get a really good close-up shot of the manifest. And I wanted to talk about some of the things that are in the manifest. I actually freeze, uh, froze 
that frame and wrote down some of the things that were in there. And if you if you noticed in the list, there was one ring of skeleton keys, two Venetian chairs, one silver ring of the McCullough family. That one actually had a name. So I fully anticipate that's going to be an actual future episode. Um, something called uh, a dollhouse with animal motifs, five, five, five feet, six inches high. It's, it's a 1.5 to 1 scale, I think it said in there. It was something like that. Part of it, unfortunately, this is an old series and there's not a Blu-ray of it available. So, you know, I kind of, you have to deal with some fuzzy scenes sometimes, especially when you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, let's see what else. A queen and bed with a canopy. Hmm. Sound familiar? A magic lantern called the Eye of Death. <laughs> so the, this, the, they could be foreshadowing future episodes, or maybe these antiques are, will never be discussed again. But I thought I'd bring it up because I thought it was pretty cool that uh, you know we actually see him in the manifest there. Now, do any of the episodes get bloody? Well, the first episode had a little bit of blood with the okay. uh, the doll slicing the criminal's neck. Right. I like it's been a while since I've watched it. I've only seen it once, so I couldn't really remember if there had been blood. I mean, there is blood, but I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't ever call the ep- any episode gory. Of the ones that I remember, I don't remember any of them being gory. Okay. I could be wrong, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see as we move along. Got 70 more to go. <laughs> I know. We're only, we're only two episodes in. It's so crazy. <laughs> All right, so I've got a I've got a couple of behind the scenes facts from this episode. When John LeMay and Louise Roby started filming this episode, they still had not signed their contracts. They were still kind of going back and forth on points and, you know, specific pay and things like that. They had agreed, they had like a handshake agreement to star in the in the show. But at this point when this episode was recorded and I think this episode was actually uh, the second episode that they filmed, if you remember last week when Doug was, uh, yeah, when Doug was here, he mentioned that the pilot was actually the third episode filmed because, um, and he explained that the director wanted Mickey and Ryan to have some kind of chemistry before the first episode. So they actually recorded a couple of other episodes first. This episode, I think, was the second episode that they filmed. And literally, the director, Timothy Bond, was just having major issues with them not signing their contract because I mean, there's legal issues. God forbid one of them gets hurt on the set and they haven't signed their contract. They could probably sue for damages or whatever else. So um, the director basically gives them an ultimatum. He goes up to Mickey and, um, or should I say he goes up to Roby and John LeMay as they're going to lunch and he tells them, okay, guys, go ahead and take a one hour lunch And if you could, please sign your contracts. If you have not signed your contracts by the end of the hour, don't come back to set. I will replace you tomorrow. Now, that's a fucking threat. I like that. That was fucking cool. And, of course, they signed their contract before lunch was over. So, yeah, there you go. They basically, they recorded an episode and a half without an actual contract. How they got paid Hmm. for those episodes is beyond me, but that's basically what happened, so... I thought, and and it is kind of ironic too that the episode where they actually sign their contract is the poison pen. Hmm, interesting. Oh, (laughs) so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Tim Bond talks about this being his first episode that he directed, um, and I quote: "When I read the script, I noticed that seventy-five percent of it took place outdoors at night. My shooting date was a couple of days before the longest day of the year, June twenty-second." I had to do a little astronomy lesson for my producers, so I didn't think that they would want their crew working only six hours a day because, you know, at this point in the summer, nighttime is only about six to eight hours. And they can't start recording at dusk, obviously. They have to wait until the sun is completely down. So so that's where they came up with the six-hour figure. They basically, uh, the producers decided, okay, uh, let's not worry about only shooting at night. And you can see the results because we have a lot of daytime scenes in this episode. The Abbott dies during the day. All the scenes of Mickey and Ryan doing chores, those are all during the day. So they, they definitely changed up their recording schedule. The problem was instead of only having five 12-hour days, the producers, and I don't know if this is a way of punishing them, but the producer basically decided to force them to start shooting 15 to 18-hour days six days a week. 
like I said, I don't know if that's retaliation from oh. the producer, but yeah, like I, I, I don't think he was very happy with the director coming back to him and saying, hey, we can't follow the schedule. It's the middle of the summer or it's the start of the summer and we have very little nighttime to shoot in. So, yeah, this episode actually has a lot of similarities with the season three episode, Mightier Than the Sword, which, of course, once again, talks about a cursed pen. Both episodes are drastically different, but the curse is basically the same. The pen writes horrible things that come true. Mightier Than the Sword has an added benefit of controlling human beings, because in this one, LaCroix wasn't like possessed by the pen or anything. So come that season three episode, Mightier Than the Sword, we will see a pen actually possess its victim into writing terrible things and then coming those coming true. So, yeah, yeah that is a that. little interesting contrast because some of the items actually seem like they possess the person to act evil, where other items are kind of just like static, where it's kind of dependent on what the per- like if the person chooses to use it, it, something bad will have an outcome. But the it doesn't seem like in this one the item actually took control to make the person do something bad. Yeah, exactly. I, and because last week, you know, we kind of had that back and forth on whether the doll was actually affecting. Uh, the little girl, like if it's actually possessing her because of her drastic personality change as soon as they got the doll away from her. So it, it was kind yeah, of... Yeah, her, her, her indifference to adults dying all around her. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but this one, like I said, very obviously, you know, we get our first real human antagonist trying to kill people, doing terrible things. Uh, another cheesy line in the episode that once again made me chuckle, but the more I thought about it just sounded stupid as hell was... Right after LaCroix dies from the guillotine, Jack says, well, he should have stuck with pencils. Mm. <laughs> Hardy har har. Hardy har har har. There you go. And then the, ne- the, the very next episode, the cursed pencil. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no the cursed pencil sharpener. Now, is it going to be one of those ones that you carry in your pocket or one of those ones that's uh, nailed to the wall at school? To where you have to, like... Like, it's almost like a guillotine. Um, <laughs> chases you around. Like a rotary. Like, you have to just keep spinning it. And, go, then, yeah. and then when you pull your pencil out, like, it's a stub. <laughs> it's a stub. Oh, a stub. Okay. I, I was thinking something, like, gory. Like, you pull, you pull the pencil out and it's a finger or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking about, well, because that would always happen to me. Because, like, you're, like, up there, like, trying to kill time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like sharpening your pencil, and then when you pull it out, it's just like a stub. <laughs> I didn't think I'm, you were old enough for those old-timey pencil sharpeners. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. They yeah. must have gone way longer than I thought they did. I figured they died once I – because I never saw one in my high school. Uh, once I left junior high, I never saw them again in my life. So I didn't see one in high school either, actually. It was in junior high. It was the last time I seen one as uh, okay. well. Yeah. See, they don't trust uh, kids 14 and under with uh, – good pencil sharpeners, so they force us to go up to the front of the fucking class and do it in front of everybody. Right, they're like... <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, folks. Pencil sharpened. <laughs> oh, yes. All right, so does anybody have any closing thoughts on this episode? Uh, you know, let's go with Lacey first, because I know Mike, obviously, is coming from the context of watching all these episodes in a row, so Lacey. <laughs> um... You know, I had a really good time talking about it, and honestly, like, just you describing it <laughs> was, I think, a little bit more enjoyable to me than watching it at times, because um, just, like, sometimes you just need that different perspective to, like, just envision it yourself and, like, take yourself back there. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, like, I definitely have an appreciation for, uh, like, the narration of that. Um, like, I will never forget you describing the guillotine just flying around. <laughs> uh, so, like, I think that's probably, I'm probably going to dream about that tonight. Oh, I'm uh, glad I could help. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, no. A nice dream to go get into October with, I guess. There you go. <laughs> Um, I think it's a I think it's a cheesy episode. Um, I am like I'm excited to come back and see what is ever next if you guys have me back. Um, just because like obviously um, my strength is not like monasteries and whatnot, but um, you know just just I enjoyed being here and uh, thank you guys. Absolutely, thank you, Mike. Any closing thoughts on this episode? Uh, I mean I pretty much said what I had to say. I mean, I did like the setup. I thought, you know, the story 
Uh, I, the thing is, it's like you're always judging these TV shows on like what can they kind of fit into what 40 minutes of an episode. They got to move things along because sometimes I, I feel with TV anthology shows like this is it can feel almost comical in the way things move so quick that you definitely have to take shortcuts with these kind of stories. Obviously, we already went over it plenty, how, how easy it was for them to just sneak into this monastery, like with very minimal like disguise and effort. Um, but that's kind of what you have to do because they don't there's no uh, time in the episode to like come up with these elaborate plans and put them into action. So you kind of try to be forgiving with that stuff. Um, so yeah. And of course, some of the special effects just what, what are you going to do with that kind of budget? So I, I try not to hold that against saying, hey, if it gives you like some laughs, I mean, I still consider that a success too, because that's better than it just being flat out boring, right? Which is oh. unfortunately when I'm covering some Freddy's Nightmares episodes, I'm like, man, these are just bad. But um, Lacey's speaking about coming back. Hey, the next episode is Cupid's Quiver. So <laughs> another bad <laughs> episode. Oh, no, Quiver. That's uh, that's error. Yeah, something about like possessing people to fall in love with the owner of it, and then it goes from there. But that's oh, pretty, it sounds like I, I feel yeah, I, I, I feel like there's like a handful of episodes with like the item making you fall in love or someone fall in love with you that, that happens quite a few times through the series. I, I remember a couple, about all I remember. But uh, I remember yeah, the makeup, I mean, the whatever they call it, the makeup compact flip thing yeah the compact because um, they, they did a couple episodes like i mentioned last time yeah, they did one with a actual like makeup kit not just a compact like an actual full-on kit and it was a male actor a stage actor who had bought okay, it and was yeah. using it nefariously but i do remember the compact too i don't remember what it did but i do i have the vague memory of the woman looking into the contact co- compact Excuse yeah me. it was like you it was like she basically would hold it up and it would show her face, and then whoever else appeared in it would like fall in love with her. Oh, oh, oh nice. Yeah, <laughs> and of course they have to make her. They had to make her super homely looking just to like show how effective it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Andrew McCarthy tells from the crypt episode. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. Like that. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, the shop is closing in ten minutes. Please bring your final purchases to the front, and Mike will ring you out. While we're doing that, we're going to go ahead and ask our hosts where else they can be heard. So, of course, Miss Lacey Lou, where else can people hear your wonderful voice? Oh, um, should I talk like Joe Pesci? No, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. Um, no. Um, you can hear um, Cut to the Chase or Slumber Party Massacre or Skip to the Lou or The Last 20, um, all under the Cut to the Chase feed, um, wherever podcasts are um, and also, uh, we do a bi-weekly uh, live show on YouTube for Rabbit and Red Radio, and that is every other Wednesday. So we will be, our next recording is October 5th, I think is the right date. Yeah, October 5th. So um, if you go by that date, it's bi-weekly from there. So. Uh, what time do you guys start? Uh, from uh, usually 7.30 Central Time or 8. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. I'll try to check uh, check it out. Yeah, it's a good time. We uh, play a lot of clips and just kind of make fun of um, movie stuff. So, yeah. It's nice. a good time. All right, Mike, while you're ringing up those purchases, uh, where else can people hear you? Uh, I got the sh- No More Room in Hell with Mr. Venom and Derek. We just put the recent episode out. It's been up for about a week now covering... Good night, mommy, and eyes without a face, uh, which were Venom's picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new fresh cuts actually went up today, and we did it on Spirit Halloween, so that's up. And I think that's it. Uh, the latest episode of Watch This Movie Mike is up, but that's been out for a couple of weeks. So you know, basically, go to the No More Room and Hell YouTube channel or Dark Discussions Network. Everything can be heard there that I'm a part of. So, there, I'll just give the sources and they can search from there. Very cool. All right. So, for me, uh, once again, it's going to be all the No More Room in Hell shows. Uh, The main show that Mike already mentioned, episode 48, is out. 
Fresh Cuts, our latest episode on Spirit Halloween, came out today. And um, let's see, where else can you hear me? Creature Comforts, our bonus episode on the Fantasia Fest, is our latest episode there. Don and I look at three monster movies that played at uh, Fantasia Fest this year. They are uh, a re-release of Space Monster out of Korea from 1967, and then two brand new films from 2022, one called What to Do with a Dead Kaiju, which was a lot better than I expected it to be, and the other is uh, the, the movie that made me soil my pants multiple times, Shin Ultraman. Um, if you guys are fans of Shin Godzilla and what they were able to do with his new origin story, you gotta check out Shin Ultraman. We gave it a glowing review. I've watched it like six times <laughs> since we got the screener. It is so, and, and of course, I'm speaking to kaiju fans, of course. You know, if, if you're an American cinema fan, like if you only like the uh, legendary Godzilla films, I might not recommend Shin Ultraman as much. But if you're a hardcore kaiju fan, Shin Ultraman is a must watch. All caps. <laughs> so please check that out. And then I'll have various guest spots coming up with our friend Lacey Lou on Cut to the Chase while they do their Thrills and Chills episodes. I'll be on an episode of the Dark Parade coming up soon. Um, a couple others that I can't think of. Oh, um, Gary Hill's show. I totally forgot the name of. I'll, I'm gonna be. Uh, I'll be on that one soon. Um, but yeah, uh, that's pretty much it for me. So, folks, that's it. Our doors are closed. Thank you very much for stopping by the shop, and we'll see you next time. Go ahead and say goodbye to the folks. Bye. Peace. No returns. <laughs> <laughs>